stay hungry, stay foolish. And we come to the end of this beautiful series with Guy Perlmutter on his award-winning book, Present Future. There's a copy up for grabs for you. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you'll be able to a chance to win that book. Just a reminder, I love bringing you this content. It absolutely is part of my purpose to give you content that will help you make better decisions in your life on a personal level and as a CEO or leader of an organization for an organizational level, decision making for investors, etc. Absolutely is the driver behind this show. And I want to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance services and products empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. But for now, let's get into the final part of Present Future with Guy Perlmutter. It's a great pleasure to welcome back the award winner, the award winning business book, Axiom Business Book, Guy Perlmutter with his book, present future, I have a copy up for grabs for you just sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter, you will be in with a chance to win a copy of that book. Guy, welcome back and congratulations, sir. Thank you very much for having me and thank you. Yeah, it's a great honor. What was the award and what was the category, etc. Just so we're very clear, and I don't get it wrong. Sure. Yeah, uh, it's the Axiom Business Book Awards. Uh, they've been doing this for more than a decade multiple categories, uh, very highly curated. Um, and uh, we won in the business technology category, gold medal. Um, and yeah, we're thrilled and very honored. Boom, nice, man. Nice. And, and by the way, I didn't have to wait for that validation. I we I knew this was a beauty, man. I knew. <laughs> it's great to have you back. And I'm conscious of how much we have to get through in so we have five chapters essentially left. And I just want to thank you because so many people will drop off and maybe not have time to rejoin us again. And I just want to thank you for your time and dedication to this series as well. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor having you on the show. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And I really appreciate your invitation. Okay, man, let's jump in. I'm going to start here as I often do with a quote. And this goes as follows. In 1873, Mark Twain wrote The Gilded Age, a tale of today, in partnership with his friend Charles Warner. The title refers to the application of thin layers of gold onto a less valuable object, such as wood or porcelain as a sort of metaphor for society's problems in the latter third of the 19th century. Things looked good on the surface, but structurally significant problems needed to be addressed. Sounds familiar. And here you tell us, the post-Civil War era in the United States saw the emergence of families with vast fortunes and the expansion of the social gap between the richest and the poorest, names such as Rockefeller, Mellon, Carnegie, Morgan, Vanderbilt heavily influenced the course society would take through their investments in railways, metalworking, industries, and banks. Today, a new group of entrepreneurs is ready to influence the future of space exploration, a segment that was until recently restricted to the governments or military powers of many countries. I thought that was a great way to tee us up for the magnificent chapter that you have on space exploration, which is so poignant at the moment, after Amazon's recent investment in space. Yes, this is a fascinating aspect of our lives. 
because not only, I think a lot of people get caught up in the hype of, you know, space travel, orbiting the Earth, going to Mars, which are all valid points, but that are not really going to impact the everyday citizen's life uh, in a dramatic way. So the interesting thing about, uh, you know, space or airspace is that we are really looking into now the, 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 the private sector piling into this opportunity because right now, thanks to the efforts of, you know, hundreds of engineers and scientists and inventors uh, and governments over the past decades, uh, and that trend that we've talked about in previous episodes of, of cheaper, better, faster, more available, uh, we can now have effectively private companies handling the load of building rockets. We have now hundreds of companies building satellites. We have companies that are facilitating the transmission of data from space to Earth. We have numerous applications, security, uh, monitoring, um, uh, data transmission, uh, data receival, um, sensors, telescopes, and all that will not only be incredibly useful for us uh, as a species going forward, because it will allow us to eventually mine celestial bodies to bring back to Earth uh, minerals that are maybe scarce or too expensive, uh, that will allow companies to build uh, and create and manufacture things in space that either we don't have the resources, the, 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 the real estate, or uh, the planet will simply not be able to sustain that in terms of pollution, water, air, sound. But also, uh, this is uh, definitely one of the paths that we're going to see for the distances in the world getting even shorter. Right now, with all the advances we've made, if you think about air travel here, you know, the time it takes for someone to go from London to New York or from San Francisco to Tokyo is, you know, give or take a couple of, of, of hours better than it was 50 years ago because you have more powerful engines and you understand, you know, the jet streams a little bit better. But at the end of the day, the physics is inescapable. There's only so much speed you can give uh, uh, using a specific type of technology. And I believe that we're going to see, you know, hypersonics and supersonics and, and uh, an effective shrinkage of, of the world where you are going to be able to, and I really think this is going to be possible uh, in our lifetimes, you're going to be able to do, uh, you know, a round trip, New York, London and back. Uh, no problem. I think this this is going to be something that we are all going to witness, I think, uh, in the next. I do not like to make predictions, as I have said, you know, many times over uh, in our previous episodes. But I think that, you know, the inevitability of, of faster uh, aircraft points to another 10, maybe 15 years where, where we're still going to look at those, you know, flight times as they are today. But they are definitely going to shrink. There's a few things happening. So there's the flight time shrinking, there's the interest here, there's the smell of a profit from the private sector as well. But there's necessity. But then on the flip side, something we've talked about a, a lot of times is looking to the past to understand the future, the present future, as you talk about. And one of the trends we've talked about is Moore's law, the 
observation by Gordon Moore that every 12 to 18 months, the cost of chips halves, the size halves, but the doubles, the power doubles. And you tell us in the 1980s, the cost per kilogram of cargo on the space shuttle was greater than $80,000. But by the mid 1990s, 10 years later, it was less than $27,000. In 2009, Falcon 1 by SpaceX brought this price down to less than $10,000 to get a, a kilogram into space. And in 2017, Falcon number nine, again by SpaceX, broke the $2,000 barrier. So in four decades, we've seen the cost of putting objects into orbit plummet and fall by 97%. That is a major influence in so much of this. And then I thought about how we're seeing disruption of the mental model of what space travel was because of entrepreneurs like Elon Musk. That's 100% right. And this is something that will affect us tremendously because right now, cost is not a barrier. Uh, if you are a company and you could benefit from uh, eyes in the sky, literally orbiting the earth, uh, you can now effectively on a very accessible manner uh, rent space on a spaceship, just let it fly, put your, your satellite in orbit, get the data, get information, get the edge, the business edge that this will give you. And this is why we're seeing this renewed interest, right? There are estimates that vary from a few billion, you know, dozens of billions of dollars up to a trillion dollars of the market opportunity that space is providing for equipment, for software, for new professions, for new careers, for effectively new ways of conducting business. Uh, and it's interesting to think that, you know, just back in the late 1960s, when you know humankind landed on the moon for the first time, that the onboard computer of the Apollo spacecraft had 16 kilobytes of memory. 16 kilobytes will not get you to play two bars of an MP3 file in your telephone, right? Your telephone has hundreds of millions of times more memory and more processing power than the spacecraft that landed on the moon, right? And this is how ingenious and how marvelous, uh, you know, the, the brain power of, you know, the collective of humanity is when we kind of set our sights into a noble and uh, and uh, interesting goal. So, so we're absolutely going to see that play out in a major fashion in, in many, many businesses. I absolutely love this chapter on space travel. And there were so many little nuggets that I'm so tempted to share, but I'm going to cherry pick some of them. So one of the ones I loved here, and if you're a flat earther, if you don't believe that the, <laughs> the earth is curved, you're not going to like this one. But Guy tells us until the advent of satellites, Earth's curvature had been an unsurmountable an insurmountable obstacle for telecommunications devices based on high frequency radio waves, because they needed to have a line of sight between the transmitter and the receiver satellites relayed the signal around the curve of the planet using antennae, which make communication between distant geographical points possible. And there's a couple of things there because the book really gave me many connections that I made between the different trends that you identified in the book. One of them was even nanotechnology, the fact that 
if somebody's injecting something into my body or extracting maybe a blood test, well, they may as well put in some type of device there that's going to track some future disease or potentially prevent some future disease. And in the same way, if I think about that from a SpaceX perspective, well, I'm going up there anyway into space, so I may as well actually start to project some Wi Fi signal and actually turn it into a business as well. There's multiple elements in that question and that observation, but I'd love you to share your point of view. No, absolutely. You're, you're right. And the, and the thing with the future and the thing with technology is that it's exponential in the sense that you can take all those different building blocks and, and start creating something new, something effective, and something that hopefully will make everybody's lives better. So uh, as an example, when we talk about uh, this network of satellites that are now orbiting the Earth and like almost building a blanket of internet coverage for any given location. Uh, the fact that we are now in, you know, in, in the first third of the 21st century, having to consider the fact that there are even today people that are flat earthers, I think ties back into the conversation we had about social networks and how any idiot with a microphone in an audience can kind of just uh, broadcast any kind of nonsense. Hey, hey. hey careful now, man. Careful. <laughs> 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 that's, that's absolutely unfair because uh, you're not an idiot. But the fact of the matter is that people that ultimately have an audience and that feel that they are entitled because, you know, the, the medium is there. Everybody can kind of just place their, 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 their opinions in there. And, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. What is really, really astounding to me is that when people make a conscious effort, a deliberate effort to propagate misinformation, facts that are not up for debate. And this is something that technology, and again, eyes in the sky and a, a, a better view of the cosmos and our role in this universe uh, should be more than enough to settle. We have pictures and videos and, and, and more than enough evidence to talk about how the earth is shaped. And I promise you, it is not flat. And this is not up for debate. I mean, I, I, I like to think of myself as a very reasonable person. And I, I love a good conversation, a good debate, points of view. You try to convince me of your point of view. I'll try to convince you of mine. And this is how we, we kind of we, we move forward. That's how science is made, right? You have a hypothesis that you, you try to prove it or disprove it, and that's all fine. But if there is a discussion where there are no there's no objectivity, then it becomes you know very tough. And I think that you know the James Webb telescope and and the amazing engineering feats that this equipment uh, achieved, they are far less reported than they should because again, it probably doesn't sell as much as you know war, famine, uh, uh, violence, and uh, pandemics. And again, I understand this is this is human nature probably, but we have to make an effort on trying to kind of just take dig these nuggets of, of, of brilliancy and of hope that are ultimately what's going to be uh, talked about and that's what's going to be propelling us forward for, for decades to come. I think this is, this is quite important. Very well said, man. And you know, it's one of the reasons I, I sometimes people will make comments and kind of go, Oh, you know what, if you covered more 
um, nuggets of knowledge, you get a bigger audience, etc. And I'm kind of going, well, there's lots of nuggets of knowledge, you know, very light touch knowledge out there, but very few organizations or, or individuals who actually go deep onto the content and allow people the time to absorb it. And that's why I appreciate these multiple episodes as well. And for myself as well, Guy, I, I learn an awful lot. Before we move on from uh, space travel, I wanted to just two things. One that you said was, okay, if I can travel from, you know, uh, from America to Australia, and I, I go into space in order to do so, one of the biggest contributors towards CO2 emissions is air travel. But this actually can circumnavigate, excuse the pun, that element. So there's an element of actually not having Earth's atmosphere polluted. That was one thing that I wanted to raise. But the other one was then, I thought about how, for example, that there's multiple wars in human humankind over the decades and centuries because of some natural resource that resides here or there. And in, in an equal way, who owns what in space is going to become a kind of a battle, I hope not an actual war in any way, but a battle in the future, who owns that airspace, who owns that space space, who owns space indeed in, in the in the bigger scheme of things becomes a big question. You're absolutely right. And again, we should not uh, kid ourselves. We should not be delusional that, you know, we're going to space and it's going to be kumbaya. Everybody's just going to get along because this is just not human nature, right? There are nations, economic interests. There are certainly going to be nations that are going to be able to access space faster and more efficiently than others. This is, again, going to be a, 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 a competition where, you know, the, the players are going to be, you know, significantly disadvantaged one in relation to, to the other. But this is how we've done things uh, uh, when we left Europe to start to explore, you know, the Americas, you know, Spain and Portugal, especially when they left the continent to uh, try to colonize the rest of the world. And South America was almost 100% Spanish and a little bit percent Portuguese. And North America got a little bit of Central America uh, and North America got a little bit of everything. Uh, and then the UK decided to kind of, okay, let's let's ship some folks to, 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 do, to the uh, the other side of the world and see what happens and, and look what happened. Uh, and at the end of the day, the whole thesis of how we can use space for good is very similar to every single technology that we've seen throughout history. There will be amazing uh, 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 perspectives and benefits for humankind, but we'll see new challenges, new uh, uh, disputes, new struggles, new careers, um, and uh, and you're right. I mean, if you look at the uh, the carbon footprint uh, that many activities leave in an atmosphere, uh, transportation is responsible for almost thirty percent of that. Right. So everything we can do, uh, cars, trains, trucks, vans, spaceship, airplanes, helicopters, everything we can do that can kind of significantly uh, reduce those emissions, we are, are, are attacking uh, all, like 30% of this load that as we have seen in IPCC's report just this week, uh, uh, we're now entering the very last uh, round of, of, of opportunities we have to kind of revert this. 
and not be uh, facing a, a very dire prospect where, uh, as I think I said before, there will be no vaccine, no you know uh, uh, drug that will help us out in that situation. If we uh, irreversibly screw up the environment, there's re really no plan B, right? There is no way we can uh, avoid some very critical uh, changes uh, in all of our lives. So this is, this is definitely, I think, part of the reason why many of the technologies I write about in the book, they are almost like they have a built-in ESG purpose to them, right? New materials, life sciences, airspace, uh, uh, manufacturing, autonomy, they're all trying to point to this future where we're not being completely uh, oblivious to those uh, important aspects of our our future. When you think of space travel as well, uh, some of it, sometimes you wonder, is it, for example, the, as you call it, the, the new billionaires in our on our planet, the Musks and the Bezos, for example, that they are hedging their bets for the future, because maybe we'll have made the planet unsustainable in the future, and they'll be able to go to these new planets, etc. And will be interplanetary species. That's one thing. And I, the reason I say that is that if there was a playbook to know how to invest in the future, and this is very poignant for your work with grids capital, for people like Musk and Bezos, you just have to have to look at their organizations and where they're investing their energy. I mentioned, for example, Amazon now invested in a whole load of new satellites in space, Musk has already done that space travel, equally blue origin with Bezos with Amazon, well, Amazon, <laughs> Amazon uh, profited uh, money, and then also energy, because energy becomes a huge player in all this because, well, if I own a technological organization, I might have servers, the servers need to be located in places that are cool, that needs energy, I need energy to power my Tesla's Tesla's maybe the batteries aren't good enough. So I need to innovate with batteries in the future. All these are connected. And to the naked eye, they look like separate parts. I often think of a hand sticking through a piece of paper that the fingers may look separated, but they're actually all part of the same thing. And when you think about that, you think about a portfolio investment strategy, this becomes very obvious. And this teases up nicely for tra for energy. And I have a quote here again, you tell us in this chapter, the United States Department of Energy via its Energy Information Administration estimates that global energy consumption will grow by about 30% between 2015 and 2040, in large part due to the continuous economic growth of countries like India and China. To meet this energy demand, the agency estimates that the percentage of renewable sources in the global energy network will grow, increasing by about 2.3% per year over the same period. Nuclear energy will also grow at 1.5% per year. Nonetheless, fossil fuels are still forecast to account for 75% of our energy consumption in 2040. Labor shifting from the industrial area, the industrial sector to the services sector also affects nations energy patterns. The term energy intensity measures the relationship between energy and GDP. And according to a report published by consulting firm McKinsey in the late 2016, this measure of efficiency continues to improve. 
in 2015, for example, the production of one unit of global GDP required nearly one third less energy than it did in 1990. The same report states that by 2050, only half of the energy used in 2013 will be re required to re produce one unit of GDP. There's a lot in that again, but I just thought that would contextualize it for our audience and tee you up to take us through this. Absolutely. The, 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 the debate that we have today regarding climate change and energy, they go hand in hand because, as I said before, transportation accounts for roughly 30% of, of the, uh, uh, the greenhouse uh, gases that are out there, and electricity accounts for almost the, another 30%. So these are two of the top emitters of, of greenhouse gases. And electricity is something that neither of us, and I guess no one in our audience, will ever think of living without, right? We now don't even assume if someplace has uh, or not access to the internet or electricity that goes without saying, right? You don't ask, oh, but do you have electricity at your hotel or your country or whatever? Uh, and I think it's becoming increasingly common that people always assume unless they're going deliberately into a very remote location where they don't want to be found, and I'm guessing those satellites are going to uh, make those locations even less common in the world, you will have uh, you know, connectivity and to get things done with your connectivity, you'll need a device and the device will need to be powered by battery and the battery will have to be recharged by electricity. So as you said, it's all connected. Nowadays, it costs more to recycle a lithium ion battery than it takes to extract the lithium from the earth and build a new battery. So there's this, uh, this uh, mad race you know, across the world trying to find you know, more efficient ways to store energy, give cars more autonomy, give devices more autonomy, get a little bit of autonomy from the grid, creating uh, ways to store, generate, transmit energy. And all those uh, trends, uh, they tie clearly into manufacturing and logistics, uh, transportation in general, uh, supply chain from every single uh, uh, angle you can look at. And that, that number, which surprised a lot of people that, you know, uh, we're like 80 plus percent dependent on non-renewable sources. This is, this is the way it is. And the fact of the matter is that we now have the technology to leverage solar and wind and nuclear and geothermal and tidal and so many other sources that are renewable and that are not going to continuously hurt environment. And this transition, it's underway. It has to be accelerated. And from a business perspective, what you see are players that can see that inevitability, that trend of, 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 of a, a very significant shift in our energy matrix trying to position themselves uh, in many aspects or many sectors, distribution or, or storage or new materials or uh, logistics or you know, any other angle that from a business perspective, they can tell, you know, this is, this is where the puck is going to be three, five, 10 years down the road. This is where I want to position my business. One of the things that I thought about when I was reading about, for example, you were talking about carbon fuel emissions and increasing temperatures throughout the world. And we've seen this, we've seen literally countries on fire. 
we've noticed in our own our own countries the changes in temperatures etc odd uh, weather effects etc and we've covered this in previous shows Guy like for example many of us personally we we might suffer from SAD seasonal adjustment disorder equally biodiversity so many animals are triggered by light or by changes in temperature to know where it is in their life cycle and literally we have birds falling from the sky because they've not been able to land or they don't know what time of year it is etc so there's huge dramatic effects happening there but one of the interesting things I read about and it reminded me of space travels like oh there's a meteor heading for earth we can actually mine it and take valuable elements from it and you're kind of going what about blasting it out of existence we talked about that before but equally we see for example that some savvy investors are going okay if there's a melt happening all over the world that means that land that is almost locked by ice today will be valuable in the future so i might start to invest in you know people at the edges of the ice caps in places like alaska or canada in order to actually have them for future server farms etc in the future so there's a dark side to it as well where people are actually trying to profiteer from these changes in the environment as well and maybe you have some thoughts on that yeah it's 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 always about fear and greed right if you if you if you to, to take this to the extreme if you remember the original superman movie back in the late 1970s right the original plan that lex luther had was i'll buy pretty much everything i can in the de california desert i'll just throw a missile in san andreas fault I'll let California go, you know, its way into the ocean, and that's going to be beachfront property, and I'm going to make a profit. So, so this is something that has been in people's minds. But the fact of the matter, and you mentioned that a, a few moments ago, uh, you know, server farms that are, you know, deliberately placed in cold uh, countries, right, where you get, you know, the cooling required for the machines at a, you know, a, a fraction of the cost, uh, but also the parallelism that those machines are presenting the efficiency now you have one one machine that can perform multiple tasks because it can now virtualize multiple machines in, inside one chip all those things i think they are feeding off of each other and again to your point there'll be people that are going to try to profit from the uh, 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 darker side of this, if they look at the trend and say, okay, so this is going to happen, I might as well kind of uh, uh, profit from it, or uh, maybe I could do something about it while profiting from it, which there's, again, nothing wrong with that. So uh, it's it's going to be, I think, a, a very uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, period uh, for us to watch very closely and, and very high stakes, right? We're, we're living in a period where all of us have a, a lot to lose if we can't afford this temperature reduction. And again, as, as you talk about in the book, like, th and this is what I, I drives me with this content is if we can help influence people on their own personal behaviors, that we all collectively change some of those behaviors, our consumption levels, our use of water, use of plastics, whatever it might be, they all cumulatively come together to make a big effect on the planet as well. And one of the things I, I just couldn't understand was when I was reading, it, I was like kind of going, why, why are we still headed towards this iceberg, which is the problem of climate change, when 
essentially the planet has had a break for two years. You know, we've given still with that, you know, turning off of international travel for 18 months, we've still seen these dramatic effects and changes. And that's worrying that even with that dramatic slowdown, we're still on course for a not so pleasant future in that respect. But we'll move on because one of the things we've mentioned this several times there is okay, mining and space, mining equals new materials, materials become really important. One of the things we saw again, during the pandemic was access to to important elements for mobile phones or fiber optic cables, etc. The logistics and the access to them were slowed down. So people had problems with them. And you say the use of new materials has become more and more common in several different sectors other than energy, medicine, manufacturing, automotive and aerospace are just a few examples technology applied to material science is our next topic here. And you begin the focus on new materials as follows you say, it is fair to say that almost every technological evolution in history of civilization was tied to the discovery of new elements and materials, their importance is so great, that archaeologists and historians have even split out the study of ancient societies based on the dominant materials of the time, present future, using names like the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. And this opens us up to things like transistors, LCD, optical fibers, graphene, etc. So over to you to take us through this fascinating chapter. Right, this is this is incredibly important. And, uh, and, and a lot of people uh, wonder uh, about, you know, the jobs of the future, since there's so much automation going on so many uh, aspects of, of, of traditional jobs that are being disrupted by AI and robotics and the combination of sensors with with big data. And, and clearly, I think, uh, uh, you know, science, material science is, is a very, very uh, a fertile ground for new jobs and new careers, because uh, there is now an ability within, you know, our technological uh, 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 community that you can manipulate atoms, you can understand how they behave, and you can uh, literally, you know, build uh, uh, materials that are composed of a few uh, atoms thickness uh, and a few atoms of width, and you can build those uh, and make them incredibly resistant or flexible or translucent or have any sort of property. And this is overflowing into every single area you can think of. So in, in, in medicine, for instance, you now can build specific uh, materials that can deliver a payload into the, the, the patient's body. And because of their properties, they will only release the payload under a specific type of conditions that are exactly the conditions that are present uh, if you find a tumor or some sort of problem uh, in the organism. So this, this knowledge that we are acquiring uh, of laws of nature, which is something I allude to in the early chapters of the book, uh, and the way we can now literally manipulate uh, the, the world around us, they give, uh, you know, they open up this door to possibilities that will make, you know, space travel feasible and cheaper, that will make our goods, our personal goods lighter, uh, that will create so many possibilities that will make uh, stuff produced just 10 or 20 years ago bulky 
and unfashionable and just weird. And this is this is a very, very critical trend. And, and exactly to your point, when I mentioned the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and the uh, uh, Stone Age, uh, these are these are, I think, reflective of the importance. You, you could argue that we've been living in the Silicon Age, right? Because our lifestyle is all based on this material with very weird uh, chemical properties. And I have very little doubt that we are going to see uh, uh, in the near future a repetition of this trend, the present future trend, where a new material that could not be in the periodic table as is, could be a combination of multiple elements that will yield some sort of incredible property that will allow us to do uh, you know, things we have not even thought about uh, before. And, uh, and I do believe that you know, people that are into the uh, material science field uh, are in for, for a tremendous payday over the next decades. And again, no trend in isolation. If there's one thing you got from this series, it's certainly that there's the Gordian knot of all these different trends changing at an exponential rate, advancing at an exponential rate, some of them going out of trend, some of them going out of fashion, as we discover new things. But I often thought about that, like think about new materials, when you start to introduce data to AI, data has been our next trend that we're going to discuss, it will find trends and connections that we cannot see as humans, we don't know, and therefore yield new results that we could have never imagined before. So that's a huge opportunity for so many people, so many of our children, perhaps that will be working in these fields. But moving on to big data, you tell us something here fascinating. And again, I love Guy, how you delve into the past to tell us about the origins of so many of these trends and so many of these technologies. And you say every four years, the general conference on weights and measures take place in Sevres, near Paris. Attendees define all aspects of the metric system which is used in the daily lives of the majority of the world's populations. The first of these events was held in 1889. And some of the most commonly used units in the world of personal computing such as mega, giga and tera were decided upon at the 1960 conference, which I found fascinating. In 1975 and 91, additional prefixes were created to support the discussion of even larger orders of magnitude, peta and exa in 1975 and zeta and yota in 1991. When we convert from one prefix, prefix to the next, we are increasing values by a factor of a thousand. For example, one peta is 1000 times larger than one tera. I thought that was just a fascinating little insight to share with our audience as well, because it made me think about how earlier on you were talking about IPv6, and how we had to introduce new IP addresses because we kind of ran out. And I just wanted to emphasize that because you talked about how, you know, a big clunky device in the past, like, for example, Apollo spaceship is less powerful than our devices in our hands now just to emphasize the sheer change of exponential rate of change of technologies. Absolutely. And and the fascinating thing with with data is that we are producing tons of data every single day. And there are agents collecting this data every single day. And this is the, uh, the, the raw materials that feed, you know, artificial intelligence engines, the big data and the AI trends, they are kind of coupled together. They're, they're really uh, very intertwined because 
uh, it's almost like you don't teach a machine or a model anything without data and without the proper data. And the fact of the matter is that not only we needed we need more addresses uh, to be able to talk to our devices and sensors and computers and tablets and, and, and phones and so on and so forth, but those uh, very uh, touch points that we're building, they are producing data by, in and by themselves. So every time you query something on the internet, every time you, you, you buy something on the internet, every time you log into your bank application, every time you fuel your car, every time you tune in a show on TV over Netflix or Disney Plus or Hulu or HBO or whatever your streaming service is, every time you interact with something that is digital or that has a digital angle to it, you're providing data. And this is the reality. I mean, I would challenge you to tell me, tell me anything minimally significant that you do in your day that is not tied to a device, to a gadget that has some sort of binary digital component to it. And with that, we have to realize we're living in a world where we are going to see outcomes that are only as good as the models that are built. And those models are going to be only as good as the data that are, is fed to them. This is why when you look at those models, the GP3 model uh, and the DALI uh, artificial intelligence artist uh, software, which is absolutely astounding, uh, you are basically looking at the expressions of what we can do when the proper minds are, 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 are around huge amounts of data and know how to sift through them. Uh, very recently, we saw the DeepMind team in London crack the protein folding problem, which has been you know, challenging scientists for so much time, which is how do you build the 3D model of a protein? And this, is, this has huge implications for our health, for drug discovery, from, from, for understanding diseases. And this was possible because now we have the data. We have the algorithms to handle just unthinkable amounts of data. And, and of course, with human insight and with human, uh, uh, I think, intuition, you can build uh, solutions around that. So big data is, is just part of our lives. We are individually, every single day, contributing to those uh, to that trend, which is only going to increase. That's something that, uh, you know, it's up and to the right. We will continue to produce more data and not less. It reminds me of so many things we talked about on the show. For example, you know, we talked about cracking the human genome and how once that was done, then you had exponential changes thereafter and that the sky's your limit, actually, like, it becomes about the understanding of the data and understanding of how to use these technologies. One of the ones I'm not sure if you saw, so Dolly the sheep, the cloning that happened, whatever, two decades ago, was it two decades ago? Uh, and um, the, 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 the same technology. So if that was the source technology, the breakthrough, you can now reduce the age of skin. So there's a huge work going on by David Sinclair, for example, in us in uh, California, about human aging, we've had on the show before Aubrey the Gray about ending human aging. But one of the things they've cracked is they've been able to inadvertently do this by mistake, like so many of the great breakthroughs do happen, 
is to reduce the age of skin using that initial anti-aging effect and they can reduce the age of skin by 30 years and but here's the thing I, I mentioned this to a few people and they're like on oh, when will it be available on the market <laughs> and I'm like oh it'll probably take 20 years because one of the big blockers in all this is always regulation it's getting FDA approval yes we rushed through because of the pandemic, we rushed through the, the vaccine, etc. But that's highly unusual. It takes a long time. Artificial intelligence, we automation, auto, uh, self driving cars, anti aging effects, these are all going to take a long time to trickle through into society. But um, I, I'm going to keep moving. Sorry, that was a little uh, sidestep for me there, because I'd love to talk about some of the trends and how they affect, for example, careers of the future. So if you are a type of person interested in this, and you're looking at what can I get into in the future, the, the sky's your limit, as long as you learn uh, basic mindsets of learning, learning how to learn, unlearning a lot of things before you're really set up positively. One of them was just there, you were saying, it's not accessing data or data entry, it's understanding data, being able to tell a story about data, but also anti biasing that data in the first place becomes a really important skill. So I wanted to just emphasize that but then that also gets to the next step, which is the huge problems of cybersecurity. We've all been impacted by that whether we know it or not. In some way, I recently only last week got ripped off Guy, and I'm going to call them out Hoka who make these brilliant runner uh, running shoes trainers for uh, they white I have a wide foot so I have a large foot and they make these brilliant running shoes and the cyber uh, I want to call them the cyber team the black hats cloned their website and called it hokaireland.com I registered I signed up I bought my hokas even had like a, an order number a customer service email address I was able to change my password, all those things, because I checked them. And I bought and anyway, got ripped off. But Visa, t thankfully, uh, restored my refunded me. But I told Hoka, then I was like, you know, I, I said, I'll do the right thing here, make sure it doesn't happen anywhere else. And they kind of went, Oh, we'll tell our cyber team. I was like, oh, that's no good. And I absolutely I, I've discovered more and more people that this has happened to them because they did it all over the world. And that's a minor thing. But many organizations are losing hundreds of thousands through cybersecurity. And it's such an important skill for people for the future. And whether they decide to be black hats or white hats is up to them. But when we have this data, when we have things like autonomous vehicles, when we have everything digitalized or digitized, it means we need security around those because people could have access to your home, your car, whatever it might be your brain, if you have a brain human interface, it becomes a really important skill for the future and one that is highly, highly valuable. You're absolutely right. And, and, and before I get into that, what a wonderful segue between big data and, and cybersecurity. Well done. That was well done. Uh, I would say that that this is this is just again, uh, it goes back to human nature. Right, we have to think about what is the common trend among every single evolution in the history of humankind. It's it's, it's human nature. We we're greedy, we're jealous, we're envious, we are uh, benevolent, we are malevolent. It it, it just we, we covered the whole gamut. But as a species, the trends are there, and we cannot again uh, be uh, uh, delusional about 
differences in behavior, uh, you know, as we go to space or underwater or in the digital domain. And this is going to be, I think, uh, I've mentioned this before, I think, you know, social networks are a huge risk for us, uh, biotechnology in the wrong hands, huge risk for us, and cybersecurity, if not properly addressed, uh, may cause mayhem more than, you know, bombs and, and bullets. Because now pretty much everything we are, our persona is reflected not through, you know, physical records, but through digital records, right? Your bank account, your streaming service, your library of books. You have a physical library behind you, but I'm pretty sure you have a ton of books in your phone, in your tablet, so that you can kind of uh, be mobile with them. Uh, your computer, so knowledge is stored digitally. And this is not only true for us. This is true for companies. This is true for utilities. This is true for providers of basic services for us. Water, sewage, gas, electricity, all those services, they are automated in one way or the other. And just today or yesterday, there was this alert for a malware that is infecting industrial facilities. And that cat and mouse game of, of bad actors trying to create malware and viruses and phishing for passwords and faking websites and creating uh, uh, Trojan horses and doing industrial spying, right? There are countries in the world that have lived off of industrial spying and stealing secrets from other nations, uh, you know, for, for decades. And nations have to have their own cybersecurity teams and companies have to build that. And this is, again, a reflection of how people are, right? If we were in a world where, okay, what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. If you want something that is mine, we can agree on a price or on a, on a, on a, or on a barter, doesn't matter. This is not how it works. There will be people that are trying to you know, steal from you. There are people that are going to deceive you. There are people that are going to try to build a walls around whatever you have, uh, be that good or be that bad. So I think cybersecurity is one of those careers. We mentioned material science, but, but certainly the gap in, in, in expertise for professionals that know their way around the, 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 the inner works of our digital world where uh, it's not only about what's on your screen and on your keyboard. It's about how the information is transmitted, protected, cryptography, uh, how you are ultimately going to access something legally uh, versus illegally. All of those aspects, I think, are going to be uh, critical for our survival, literally, because uh, I would not be surprised if some conflict in the not very distant future is completely anchored on disrupting uh, a country's capability of, of having clean water of, or, or, or blocking their power grid or just messing up their banking system and, 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 and flatlining their currency. It reminded me of a quote by Einstein. And he said, I know not with what weapons World War Three will be fought. But, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. And I thought I always think about that quote when I think about war in the current world, because if you put all these trends together, and you look back and you kind of go, autonomous robots 
who can make decisions themselves, drones that appear, that all the stuff we talked about, you're kind of going, oh, oh, that's that's a scary thought uh, for the world ahead. The last one is not an easy one. The, <laughs> the last trend is a difficult one to get your head around, which is the world of quantum computing. I, I did a show um, a couple of years ago now. It's it's our most popular, second most popular show. It was with David Deutsch, uh, who's just this amazing mind. He's, he's a modern day... Uh, Einstein, actually, amazing, amazing guy. And I felt so I, I was like, just about holding it together, <laughs> trying to ask questions like kind of going, don't go too deep, man, don't go too deep. Because I just basically got a basic grasp of his work. And afterwards, he's like going, you did well, you actually you did well. And uh, but it's still quantum computing, very difficult for people to get their head around. But what I do want everybody to understand is, think about 5G, think about AI, think about quantum computing coming together, and then nanotechnology, this technology being smaller and smaller and smaller inside of your body, emitting transmissions, uh, communicating to other internet, uh, internet of things. And you need to be learning about these things, you need to know these trends, because it's so valuable in the future and in the present to understand these things. So. I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna e end on an easy one. Quantum computing, man. What have you got for us? Okay, so 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 thank you <laughs> for that. <laughs> in in rugby, we used to do we used to have this thing called a hospital pass. A hospital pass is when you pass to the guy just before he's going to be absolutely trounced by a tackle. So just <laughs> it's called a hospital pass. So there you go. Over to you. The jury for quantum computing honestly is still out. There, there are like hundreds of millions of dollars, incredibly smart people, you know, uh, dedicating their efforts to this new technology and, and to make it, you know, uh, 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 simple and objectively clear. Uh, the key, uh, I think, aspect of quantum computers is that they are probably generating interest because there are some problems, some challenges that traditional computers, the binary computers, the computers where your information is, is represented through a zero or a one, those computers are not very good at handling. And quantum computers, on the other hand, they're great for this whole other family of, of problems. And so in the same manner that computers were really bad at identifying a face and we created algorithms uh, AI algorithms to help them understand, oh, uh, this is John, this is Mary, this is Paul. Uh, we're now looking at computers that are getting better at handling problems like, okay, I have to decompose this prime number in the fastest possible way. And traditional computers take a really long time to process this. And this is so critical because all of our security online is dependent on the fact that computers are not very good at factoring prime numbers. And if we come up with a technology, and it's very possible that quantum technology could be this breakthrough that is able to perform this type of operation quickly, then we'll have to rethink everything we know about how to keep our presence online safe. So this, the stakes are really, really high. 
And so in a nutshell, if you think of information in your computer represented by a zero or a one, right? It's on or it's off. And then you, and, and you gather as many zeros as one as you can think of. And this represents a pixel or a number or a word or whatever. Quantum computing is, is, is basically something that lives in this very weird non-intuitive state where it's not a zero and it's not a one. And it's not something that is very easy for us to imagine, but think about uh, at any given point in time, instead of something having to represent either black or white, either yes or no, either on or off, it could represent all of the above, right? Could be all of the above. So the sheer quantity of information you can process, digest, and produce if you don't need to stick to very very well-defined states is just mind-blowing. So there's still a lot of research there. And I think we're going to listen and to, we're going to read about that in the context of cybersecurity before it starts to become anything else. And again, I think the jury's still out. It's early years, early days. This is why I kind of pushed it to the tail end of the book. And because I think people have to have at least a notion that, yeah, there are brilliant people working on that we'll see what comes out of that uh, over the next few years. Yeah, well, great, great explanation, man. And also, when you understand Schrodinger's cat, for example, now, you know, it makes sense why that whole idea of quantum works for, for that and the computers as well. So thank you for that. Guy, I have a, a quote to kind of finish us, sign us off from today's episode from from our series, which has been an absolute pleasure. One of the books you mentioned during the, epi the episodes, an earlier episode was Jeffrey West's book Scale. And Jeffrey is a forthcoming guest on the show as well. So again, he's agreed to do multiple episodes. He's former um, director of the Santa Fe Institute as well. Wonderful book. And uh, I didn't want to say it to you at the time. And he's coming on. I know you like that book and you read it. So it's, it's going to be a forthcoming episode in the Exponential series as well. And um, before I sign off, and I have this quote to, to sign us off from my perspective, two things. One is, where can people find you? I've asked you that before, but we may have some new listeners who haven't heard the earlier episodes. And where can they get the book, etc. But also, while I'm going to give this quote in a moment, have a think about your own final message, why, why you wrote this book, and what's your sign off for audience as well. So firstly, where can people find you? Thanks for that. And uh, again, thanks for having me. It's been a delight to uh, kind of uh, do this series with you. You're, you're a wonderful host and uh, uh, brilliant questions and a uh, very thoughtful question. So thank you. Uh, so the book, everything you want to know about the book uh, may be found at presentfuturebook.com. It's the book splash page. You know, we got uh, you know, where to buy it, a subscription to uh, a newsletter that I write on a monthly basis about deep technology and trends, uh, and also links to my Twitter page, which is at Guy Perlmutter, my LinkedIn page at Guy Perlmutter. So, or you just may Google my name and you'll, you'll find me. I'm, I'm, I'm not a hard person to find online for sure. Great. Well, I, I have a quote, a final quote as well. And, and you know, my practice of wearing a pin, I actually I had this pin, I don't I don't think I've worn it before. It's back to the future. And I thought that was ideal. It couldn't have been a better a book as well. And don't forget for our audience, I have a copy of Guy's book up for grabs present future business science and the deep tech revolution by Guy Perlmutter award winning business book axiom. So it's a wonderful book and so much history, so many Ah, that's where that came from moments 
in the book as well. And you did an immense amount of work to put this together. So thank you. And thank you so much for your time, Guy. My final quote, and then I'm going to hand it out over to you goes, changes happen constantly before our eyes. We don't notice the growth of our children because we see them every day. But it only takes someone who doesn't see us regularly to say, wow, they've grown so much. And we are reminded of the relentless march of time, which takes everything and everyone along with it without distinction. We are living in a time when the excess of choices, options and alternatives can leave us paralyzed. The complexity and convenience of the world lived in by a large part of the population causes anxiety and a sense of powerlessness that suppresses ambitions, inhibits curiosity and confounds expectations. I wanted to say that because yes, we can see it that way. This quote goes on further, but with knowledge, we can change the world when we share that knowledge, when we consume it, when we seek out beyond the filter bubbles that many of us live in, we can find new knowledge that's empowering, we can make better decisions. And ultimately, that's what this show is about. And that's what this series has been about. And it's been a great pleasure talking to you, Guy, talking about this. So over to you to close our series, sir. Thank you so much. Yes, no, you got it. The The idea behind the book was always, okay, why do people believe that change is just a very recent feature of our lives, right? Technology has been accelerating and changing us and modeling society forever. It's just gotten faster and faster and faster. So I thought, why don't I create something that in layman's terms may get people up to speed? Because as you said, knowledge is power. I really believe that people are fundamentally good if they know what is happening, if they know the multiple changes that are coming our way, they may prepare better. They may, I guess, have a, a better expectations about what's coming while not being naive about the challenges that the, the technology itself is bringing to us climate change and disinformation and cyber attacks and biofare wars and so on and so forth. So the idea behind the book is for people to be more prepared, more aware, and hopefully uh, people are going to be more cognizant of how important and how valuable our present is so that we can build a, a better future. Author of Present Future, Business Science and the Deep Tech Revolution, Guy Perlmutter, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Nice one, man. Well done. It was great. Mic drop. There <laughs> we go. And that's it. The end of this excellent episode with Guy Perlmutter. Don't forget, I have a copy up for grabs. I'll probably have announced it by the time this episode hits the air. But it's been an absolute pleasure talking to him. I hope you enjoyed it too. I want to thank our sponsor, Zai boldly transforming the future financial services with a suite of embedded products empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai as always on hellozai.com.